Episode 110, two middle-aged men in Cleveland, Ken Dworznik and Ted O'Klopp, celebrating St. Patrick's Day week. Congratulations. Do you have any Irish in you? I think I have a little. I think we all have a little Irish in us. Yeah. Particularly on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, for sure. Any plans for St. Patrick's Day? Obviously, we could talk about that later on, but off the cuff, no. Right? No. No, nothing. Same, same here. It's a day that ends in Y. Correct. Well, certainly like to dedicate episode 110 to some famous jersey numbers for Cleveland athletes. I know this is a favorite segment by many people. There's a host of them from the Cleveland slash Indians Guardians. Can you name any number 10s from the Cleveland baseball? Well, I believe Alvaro Espinosa impressive yes uh i would go with my favorite backup quarterback mike pagel i believe was number mike pagel is a very good answer yes uh come on make it three for three and come up with some sort of cap that would be amazing if you did this you got a shot on one of them uh i'm uh, (laughs) i was about to say a tall guy but (laughs) I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. Wally Zerbiak. How about him? I was going to say that's his is he flashed into my head, but I couldn't think of his name. He's on TV. He's an analyst. So it's like every other former player seems like. Right. Other notables from the franchise. Coco Crisp. That was always a fan. Dave Roberts, who's a manager in Major League Baseball. This is one I thought you would say. Pat Tabler. Ah, yes. Our friend then, uh, Case's favorite player. Jim Hegan, obviously, Ray Fossey. Yeah. Mark Lewis. Remember Mark Lewis, the shortstop, who was supposed to be the second coming? Oh, yeah. My gosh. When we had, do you remember this? We had Reggie Jefferson at first, Mark Lewis yeah. at second, uh, Felix Fermin at short, and I can't remember who was at third. But that was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the greatest infield since the 27 Yankees or something. I think the third baseman was supposed to was Eddie Williams, if I'm not mistaken. So could have been. Could have been. Yeah, they, he, they were supposed to be the greatest ever. And yeah, we ended up trading him. <clears throat> uh, John Battle for the Cavs. Remember John yes. Battle? Yes. And then. Uh, Anthony Schwartz for the Browns and Brady Quinn is always a good one as oh, well. Oh well, I, yeah, I kind of dropped uh, I dropped the ball on that uh, Anthony Schwartz one. No pun intended. Yes, the pun <laughs> was intended. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's nice to think about those former players. We've had yep. so many. Yep. Wow. Huh. Uh well, uh I know the last time we spoke, we were getting ready for some uh, playoff hockey. Oh yeah, that's right. We need the we need the full result. I I, I know what the result is, but I, I, obviously you need to inform the listeners on what happened. So uh, we made the uh, we made we won the semifinals. That we were the four seed. We beat the number one seed four to three, and we advanced to the championship where we lost two to nothing. But a good game, and that's we had impressive. plenty of chances, and that's you know. Uh, the most entertaining part of it would have been um, in the semifinal, 
this would be for my oldest son, who's a goalie. He got in there in the third period. He, he splits time with another goalie. And he got in there in the third period. And I didn't realize this. Do you know what live barn is, Ken? Say that again. Live barn? Live barn. Live barn. No, I'm not familiar live with that. Live barn is a video streaming site that lots of high school arenas, uh, hockey facilities have. And it's got a uh, auto auto controlled camera that takes you to the end of the court where the action is. Oh, geez. And so you can watch, uh, get, you know, like grandma who lives in uh, South uh, South Carolina can watch the game. Understand. So unbe- unbeknownst to me, the live barn camera was right above me during the game. <laughs> and it has audio. Oh. And so during the game, there was a uh, one of our defensemen got caught a little flat-footed, and there was a one-on-one situation with my son in the goal. And what you hear, so he steps up, challenges the kid, stones him, makes the save. Great play. The audio you hear is, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh! Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's well, at least you didn't swear. Yeah, that's true. But that was uh that was that was a highlight. That's unbelievable. So okay, let me let's go back to this thing with Live Barn. So yeah. was every game on Live Barn this year? No, or just this it, no, uh it depends on what arena you play at. Okay. If you're at an arena that has the Live Barn then then it's on there. That's unbelievable. So like the Strongsville rink, OBM Arena, yeah, they have it. Sure. So any game at OBM Arena, you can watch it live or video on demand for 30 days after the game. You paying for that? You have to pay? You get, you get, there's a subscription, yes. I figured as much. That's a really good idea. I mean, for instance, last night I did the same thing with the uh, Ash University women's team. I couldn't make it down to the arena and they have something called, you know, the live stream or whatever, where they kind of did that. But they have kids running cameras and all that kind of stuff. That's that's amazing at a younger age that the kids can have the opportunity to obviously not a, not only have the opportunity for other people out of town to watch, but almost showcase their skills. If you think well, about that, I mean, that's not just, not just that, but also for game film. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Wow, that's that's unbelievable where we're at in yeah. technology. So very cool. Well, good for Fritz. Yeah, congrats to him. And now does he he gets a break, right? I mean, we're gonna you take know, a little. I mean, we're break. doing uh, spring skills now, so he's still doing that. Uh, my middle son Gus had a hockey tournament over the last weekend here, and we went two and two. We lost two to one. We won three to one and seven to nothing. And then we played a team that was really good that just uh, obliterated us. We lost eight to four. They were, they were probably uh, slotted a division lower than they should have been, but it's awful tough for these tournaments to, you know, you got a team from out of town and you know, it's tough to tell. So yeah, it is. Hey, I was told that before I got there, I got the game a little late. I was told that uh, Gus got checked while he was in the goal. He was a goalie. He got checked in the goal. No penalty was called, which 
you know, anytime you check a goalie, uh, yeah, you're not supposed to be able to do that. Um, and then he took a really hard shot off his shoulder. And then in the second period, he got run into again and he was down for a little bit. So I went over in the third period where it was five to four going into the third period. And I thought I'm going to go over, check on him and give him a little pep talk. Cause he always talks to me about how my team needs me. So I was going to tell him his team needs him. So I go over and he skates up to me and I could see tears in his eyes. And I thought maybe he was hurt. And I said, what's the matter? And he says, they're shooting the puck way too hard. <laughs> and I said, well, bud, you're the goalie. But 53 yep. and one are just shooting it too hard. <laughs> and at that point, I knew we were toast. <laughs> and so I was like, well, bud. You, you just got to hang in. And he's like, I don't want to be out here. And I'm like, dude, you got to finish the game. We don't have another goalie. Right. Okay. <laughs> and I'm, so I'm like, you know, you always talk to me. So then I, I try to give him the pep talk and it's obviously toned down because I'm just, I'm, I'm resigned to the idea that he has little to no interest in being in front of the puck. And uh, so I gave him my spiel and he went out there and gave up three more goals. <laughs> so are you trying to say that at some point you're not going to be coaching hockey? Is that what you're trying to say? I, uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't just, see that's my future. You'll stay on the counseling side is what you're I didn't do. have the, uh, Chuck Kyle, uh, <laughs> speech ready to go or the Marty Schottenheimer. There's a gleam, man. That clearly didn't, uh. That didn't 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 work. So, but oh. you know, I mean, that's that's tough. And you know, when you're ten years old, sometimes kids do shoot the puck hard, and you got to figure out, you know, you want to be a goalie or not. What are you gonna do? He's learning. He's learning good life lessons as well. Yeah. He's doing. Yeah. So that's good. So there you go. Well, uh, speaking of going, uh, we're gonna go uh, move ahead on our show here. Uh, we're gonna talk with. Former New York City police officer Vic Ferrari. He's here with some uh, interesting stories about his time in blue. We have a story about shaving cream and table tennis balls. Mm -hmm. That's not in Klopp's clips, and that's 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 a concern, I know. So we'll we'll try to iron that out. We also are gonna go out and about. We have a misspeak or two. We're gonna learn about a great Cleveland basketball coach a Cleveland landmark, and much more. And now, a woman's perspective. What's the difference between Bigfoot and intelligent man? Bigfoot has been spotted several times. This has been a woman's perspective. Today's guest is Vic Ferrari, former New York Police Department officer. He is a book writer. I think he's a humorist, and I think he's got a great story to tell us here on Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland. Vic, first of all, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, as a middle-aged man myself, I'd like to thank you, you, Ted and Ken, for having me on your show. I greatly appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Well, Vic, we are very interested to talk to you anytime you have the opportunity to talk to somebody. And I have the utmost respect for police, policemen, firemen, anybody that does any of those services. Wanted to talk to you anytime you can hear someone that has a little bit of humor involved with that. That is wonderful. But can you give us an update? Talk about how long you were an officer, what made you get into being a police officer, things of that sort. Sure. I'm a Bronx kid born and raised in New York City. Always wanted to be a police officer growing up in the 70s and 80s. You always had cop shows and television shows and movies. So I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. I like to tell the story by 10. My friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and then run around <laughs> the neighborhood conducting manhunts. So there'd be some poor guy in a deli trying to get a sandwich and we'd be holding up a wanted poster next to some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Louisiana. We're lucky we can get our asses kicked. So I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. I wanted to catch the bad guys. So at 20, I took the police exam. And by 21, I went into the police academy. And I had a 20, wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. I worked in a lot of different units. I worked in uh, anti-crime, which is plain clothes, stopping you know robberies and burglaries in process, in progress. I worked in a DUI unit, which I absolutely hated. I worked in narcotics for a while. And then my last 10, uh, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, stolen vehicles, mafia, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, those are the type of cases we worked on. And, uh, you know, it was a great run. And I retired relatively young after 20 years. I got into writing and I've written a series of behind the scenes books about the New York City Police Department. Vic, that's kind of what I wanted to get into next. Obviously, we're based out of Cleveland, so obviously we, we deal with our own set of issues and things like that, and we know how difficult it is for a police officer to you know, certainly reside in Cleveland and, and do those things. I guess my first question for you before we go into some of your books, how difficult was it? I mean, was it, you know, you hear these stories. I was just in New York City about three weeks ago. Obviously, it's a wonderful place to visit. I absolutely love being there. There's just a lot of people, you know, so obviously you think about if there's more people, is there more issues? Is that the case? Is that what you kind of found during your 20 some year career? Oh, absolutely. So you got to remember, New York City has nine million people packed into the five boroughs and the New York City Police Department is the largest police department in the country, maybe the world. I mean, we have at any given time between 30,000 and 35,000 members. And that's spread out across 77 precincts or police stations across the five boroughs. And that's not including specialized units like I worked in organized crime and borough task forces. So uh, it was it difficult. Yeah, it was. But I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. Like there were very rarely did I say to myself, well, why did I take this job? You know, it's um, yeah. I wanted to learn as much as I could. I was like a fish to water and I really enjoyed it. I mean, sure, you have your ups and downs and there were days, you know, I was kicking myself in the ass. But for the most part, you know, it was a fulfilling career. Talk about your books, Vic. You know, obviously the opportunity to put some, you know, pen to paper and tell a story. Tell us how you kind of came up with the stories. Was it just your experiences as a police officer? What What made you put that together? I never really gave writing a second thought until I retired. I moved down to Florida. I got a job with a local police department down here, and it was not a good fit. I mean, it was a great police department, but I went from investigating organized crime in the largest police department in the world to Reno 911. 
And, you know, it's, you know, 40 something years old. I'm doing drunk drivers again. I'm doing domestic calls in the middle of the night. I had to take a half day class on how to wrestle an alligator. And I'm like, can't we just shoot these things? Like, no, you got to carry duct tape and get behind them. You know, I'm I'm not Steve Irwin. I'm not doing this shit. So after about eight months of that, I said, you know what? I'm re-retiring. And I was bored out of my mind. And I guess it was out of necessity and, and the encouragement of friends and family. They said, listen, you worked in, in, in the world's largest police department. You got all these crazy stories. You know how to tell a story. Why don't, why don't you, you know, start writing these things down? And I did. And, you know, it, it's, it's led to, to a successful writing career. Vic, is there one uh, area of law enforcement? You mentioned that you uh, had uh, several different, wore several different hats over your career. Is there one area that you found A, to be the most enjoyable and B, is there a different one that was the most challenging? The most challenging was DUI. So I was in a South Bronx precinct that was burned out. It used to be like Fort Apache. By the time I got there in the mid 80s, they used to call it Little House on the Prairie because it was just <laughs> decimated, just fucking crackheads and just yeah. burned out buildings. So I says, and then, you know, a lot of my coworkers were Vietnam vets and just, it was a dark place. So I transferred to a borough task force figuring, well, this would be great. I'll get to see the whole borough. And I got thrown into a DUI unit. And that was the most challenging because there's no winning with drunks. They're either combative, they're hysterical crying, they get sick, they piss in the back of the radio car, they want to fight. And, you know, I mean, some people you lock up for drunk driving. It's not like they're career alcoholics and they don't care. It's someone that made a mistake. You know what I mean? Some woman that worked at Applebee's as a manager and after work celebrating her birthday, she had one wine too many. And now, you know, you're taking her to jail. So I, I that really never sat right with me. What I enjoyed, I, I grew up in a neighborhood. We had more car thieves in my neighborhood per capita than probably anywhere in the world. And I worked in a gas station and you always had car thieves blowing through there, trying to sell the car, trying to sell parts, trying to work you for something. So I knew what to look for with stolen vehicles. And early in my career, even in uniform, I was always getting into car chases. I was always locking up car thieves. So I was a perfect fit for the NYPD's auto crime division because our mission there, if you ever saw the movie Heat, where Al Pacino uh -huh. and those guys are working on crews, that's pretty much what we did with auto theft. The only difference was we weren't as well dressed. You know, we weren't in suits and ties. We were in jeans and sneakers. But I mean, we went after, you know, the head. We went after the kingpins. We went after the guys shipping cars out of the country, guys that were chopping up cars in the back of a salvage yard or junkyard. We wanted to, you know, if we could stop those guys, we could put uh, an end to the market. Vic, obviously so many stories you can tell. If you can give us maybe one quick story that you have that, you know, obviously one that you kind of remember or, you know, everybody has a story at times where they wake up in the morning and they, like, you know, they think about something. Is there one story that you have that you're like, you just keep thinking about time and time again? Um. Not really. I mean, I don't I, I tend not to live in the past, except for when I'm writing my books, then I get to live vicariously through myself. But if you're looking for something interesting or I worked on a case where we had a guy from from China who was uh, a kingpin. And what he was doing was he hooked up with this Jamaican middleman from the Bronx and he would put in orders of twenty five to thirty. He wanted stolen Audis a month. So the Jamaican guy knew all these car thieves in the Bronx. They would steal these vehicles four or five at a time. They'd park them on the street. They'd let them cool off. Then first thing in the morning, 
they would drive out to Brooklyn where they had this warehouse in, in, in an industrial neighborhood. The door, the gate would open in this large warehouse. Two, three stolen Audis would go in. They would close the gate. Inside, they had shipping containers. And Chinese nationals, what, what they would do is they would load two stolen vehicles per shipping container, let the air out of the tires so the vehicle would sit low in the container. Then they would build a wooden frame above it with a chain. And then they would hoist up another car or two. So they were getting three to four stolen vehicles per shipping container. From there, the cars would get trucked out to Newark, New Jersey, where they were put on trains. They were railed out to Long Beach, California, where they were put on ships and set sail for the, uh, Shanghai. So we were working this case. We had Asian detectives monitoring you know, the kingpins that were ordering the stolen cars. We had the Jamaicans phone tapped. We had the car thieves, who most of them were Spanish. We had Spanish detectives monitoring their, um, their phone conversations. And what we quickly realized, in addition to this international car theft ring, was our thieves were the murder for hire business. And they're talking about whacking this guy and whacking that guy. So when we eventually took down the case, I mean, we recovered all these cars. We got all these Chinese nationals that were shipping cars to Shanghai. But we were able to solve between 13 to 15 homicides. Oh, my gosh. What's the time frame of this whole thing from maybe when you guys started working on this till we kind of came up with all this, these ideas and found all this out? What's the time frame? Uh, well, the Westchester County DA's office and the New York State Police were on these guys about a year before we came on board. We we came on board probably early 1999, and I want to say we took that case down in early 2000. And uh, but these guys were doing this for years, and the homicides wow. went back. You know what I mean? So it we were, we were listening to their phone conversations, and they were bragging about stuff they had already done. And in one case, during the wiretap, two of the thieves actually committed a homicide, and we were able to pull them off the playing field. But uh, yeah, it was uh, most of these guys that that we were you know following around and stuff had bodies on them. My gosh. You went through these experiences, you put these into books. Has there, I mean, obviously I, I understand probably how you put this together is, you know, you're not using names and all that stuff. You're just talking about stories. Do you ever have other people come up to you and said, Hey, I read this story and I, I know more about this or anything like that. Has that situation came to you? Well, the funny thing is when I got into writing police books, I said to myself, the two things I don't want to do is I don't want to get anybody divorced and I don't want to yeah. get anybody embarrassed or jammed up, right? Yeah. So you're right. With my books, I do change the names, the dates, the locations. But I mean, and I might move a character from one story into another or embellish a little bit. But for the most part, these things happened. Um, I was afraid of blowback because I said to myself, I'll never forget. I had I had spent a year of my life putting this book together. And I had my finger on my laptop just about to upload the book onto the Amazon platform for sale. And I said, should I really be doing this? <laughs> like, like, you know, <laughs> am I going to catch a lot of shit for this? And and the funny thing is, my coworkers loved it. The next thing I know, I'm getting phone calls from guys and girls. You should write about this guy. Remember this? So, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, My colleagues and either even people I don't know reach out to me through Facebook and stuff, because you got to remember, New York City Police Department is, is huge. So yeah. I get guys and girls reach out to me all the time. Like, I, I, I remember that happening and blah, blah, blah. So, oh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely memory lane. I can imagine. And you're going to have as more people read your books. You're probably going to have more people. But I, I can only imagine this is happening to you, not only for New York, but other areas, I imagine, too, that are reaching out and say, hey, this would be a good story or I have this story. Yeah, I think you have you have a, this is a really good idea, because in all honesty, 
I have not heard of, I've heard of some other police officers, but not to the detail and talk about the stories you did. I think you really have, this is a really good idea, to be honest with you. This is really good. Vic, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You know what it is? Cops over time were um, what was a reclusive group. Cops are not very trusting. And I spell that out in a couple of my books. Like when you approach a cop in the street, even to say hello, or for the most part, anybody that comes up to a cop has a problem. And what you're going to get is that stoic, robotic, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, until they get to know you. You know what I mean? It's like a, a dog yeah. sniffing you. They'll talk to you all day long through the screen door, but they're not going to let you in. I, I try to humanize cops and explain what's going on behind the scenes or at least my mindset or the backs. It's like a backstage pass because you see what goes on inside the station house, the politicking, um, the, 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 the nonsense, the, the ridiculous roles and, and inside positions that are created that serve no purpose other than to have yeah. people just kind of like the NYPD has got more dead wood laying around, you know, for termites. Yeah. And as I imagine, as I've talked to many other officers and people, you know, obviously in that service industry, things change from when they started to when they were, you know, at the point where they're basically done. Did you see the same thing? I mean, it just was it harder to do your job as as, as time went on? Oh, absolutely. And and I mean, I had it easy by NYPD standards. I mean, when you're a detective working in organized crime, you pretty much make your own hours. I mean, it has to get run by supervisors, obviously, and it has to be, you know, by the needs of the department, what's going on with the case. But I mean, I wasn't I didn't have to put up with the nonsense of a patrol cop, the, the ever changing rules and regulations. But things were changing. And uh, I had been in the same office for 10 years and it became apparent after a while. It was like musical chairs. People were leaving. I was the old guy in the office at 41 years old, which isn't old, wow. but you know, when no. your supervisor's 27, 28 years old and has his own ideas, it was time to go. As great as I had it, I could see the writing on the wall. It was in crayon. And I said, you know what? I don't want and I, and I had seen it happen to other people, including my lieutenant. When you hang around too long, everybody, no matter how valuable you are in a position, outlives their usefulness. Because like you said, yeah. things change. So it was time to go when I put in my papers and retired after 20. Wow. Well, good for you, to be honest, so they have the opportunity to do that. So Vic talked about the books. You know, certainly what's next on the horizon for you? You've written books. Are you looking to write some more? Is there other things you're looking to do? Yeah, I've written six books, um, working on my seventh, four of which are um, NYPD themed. Uh, to sell my books, I come on these podcasts and radio interviews, and I'm grateful for the opportunities. And I'm hoping at some point, you know, somebody in Hollywood or television says, hey, you know what? This guy's got something that we could use. They option one of my books and I can become a consultant or, you know, have my own show or, you know, whatever. But um, I do enjoy writing the books. I mean, it's fun living vicariously through yourself. And then there's other times where I want to pull my hair out with a set of vice grips. But, you know, it's it's a fun thing. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Vic, thank you so much for the time. One last question for you. If people were interested about your books or more about you, do you have a website or where can they go to purchase your books? Sure. Um, just go on Amazon, go to the book section, type in my name, Vic, V-I-C, Ferrari, like the car, and my book library will pop up. And uh, my book titles are NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, 
Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and NYPD Law and Disorder. And like I said, they're all, they're great books. There's no beginning, middle, end. They're great travel books. They're just chapters with short stories about the inner workings of the New York City Police Department. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, my social media handles at, on uh, Twitter and Instagram is at VicFerrari50. Vic, we really appreciate the time. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Once again, thank you for all your service and thank you for these wonderful books that we have the opportunity to experience some of the stories that you have to tell. Thank you so much. Ken, Ted, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Miss Speaker of the Week now, Ken, as you may recall, the, uh, the NCAA March Madness is uh we're getting ready for that this weekend and we had the selection show last weekend right so uh clark kellogg clevelander clark kellogg had the some SJ, baby he had some uh analysis regarding uh the tcu basketball program when they were put in as a six seed let's uh let's give this a listen yeah i'm thinking the same thing seth but keep an eye on those texas for Frogcorns. they are a terrific team mike miles is outstanding in the backcourt remember they blew kansas out in lawrence earlier in the season this is a very scary team seated number six they're so scary that you can't even call them the right name i love the Frogcorns. actually frog i think that's horn. a great name i think that's yeah. cool it's different that's uh texas they're the texas Horned frogs is the is the yeah. proper frog frog horns frog horns. Yeah. I had I had that frog whatever the they were they were a little extra crispy but they were okay. <laughs> uh, now uh, not to be outdone, our uh, esteemed uh, president, you know he didn't want to uh, get left out of the situation here with the uh, misspeak of the week, and he gave an update. He talked about the February jobs report last week. This is what he had to say. I'm happy to report that our economy has created over 300,000 new jobs last month. And that's on top of a half a million jobs we added the month before. All told, we've created more than 12,000, 12,000 jobs since I took office. 12,000 jobs, Ken. This, is a, this man is a job creator. Numbers are hard. We all know yeah. this. They just the addition part is is struggling. That's wow. uh, so we got frog horns and twelve thousand jobs. Do you think there's more misspeaks with our current president than any other president combined? I mean, well, it certainly seems like that. There was plenty with Trump. Don't get me wrong. Right. We we kind of like came in so on many. the tail end of that. So uh, and it'll be interesting to see whoever is elected. Assuming we're still doing a show, which I don't know why we wouldn't be, but you know, yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see if the uh, if the volume of misspeaks continues. We can only hope. I mean, we we almost need to rename this segment like the the presidential moment or something. Yeah, no kidding. It's it's so often that it's the president, the current president. I think we've had one with uh, President Trump since we, but like I said, he was kind of heading out at the you know, when we started this. So that all 12,000 jobs and the frog horns, frog horns. I can even say it in frog horns. Yeah. Frog horns. Uh, yeah. Right. That's the misspeak of the week. Cleveland. This is for you. 
Time for another Cleveland sports history lesson. Our historian of sports, Dusty Sloan, joins us to talk about March 1st, 1996. Atlanta's Lenny Wilkins, who obviously spent a great deal of time in Cleveland, the first NBA coach to hit 1,000 career victories when the Hawks beat, ironically, the Cleveland Cavaliers 74-68, to a a high-scoring duel. Uh, Dusty, what can you tell us about Lenny Wilkins uh, and his time here in Cleveland during some of those great uh, teams of the 80s? Uh, Lenny Wilkins, obviously, again, like you said, it's the irony that he would get his milestone thousandth win against the Cavs, and that's really the only thing that needs to be said about that game when you say it was 74-68. But Lenny Wilkins, as we talked about in previous episodes, there wasn't a lot of continuity and cohesion in that Cavs coaching staff until Lenny Wilkins arrived in the mid-80s. And obviously his arrival came with Mark Price, Brad Doherty, Larry Nance, Craig Elo, Hot Rod Williams. You can go on and on and on, Mark Harper. And that's when the Cavs really started to get more stable and more consistently winning. And Lenny Wilkins was a big part of that because obviously Bright Mind won a championship in Seattle prior to that knew what he was doing, and he brought a lot of stability to a franchise that didn't have a lot of it up until that point. Well, he certainly did. And one thing that people forget, too, he was a very good basketball player himself. He's in the Hall of Fame just for playing as well, besides being a being a coach. And I think that's part of the reason their point guards were always so good. Mark Price, you got to think about some of the other players that played. Steve Kerr, when he first started, he had John Bagley. So those guys were were very good players at the time. What, what do you think happened with him, to be honest with you, Dusty? Was it just a change of scenery of why the Cavs let him go? That would be my guess. I'd have to kind of look and see what all transpired back then. My memory's a little foggy on that, but the it, it's, it's the same with every sport and every coach. You talk about Andy Reid in Philadelphia with the Eagles. Eventually, you listen to one voice so much for so long, you need a change. The problem is, really, you went from him to Mike Fratello, and there was some winning there. But then again, after that, they kind of got stuck in <laughs> changing coaches, changing coaches, changing coaches. And that continuity just wasn't there. So after a while, yes, you're winning, but then maybe you're not as not winning as much. And then the owner goes, well, we're going to make a change in coach. And that doesn't always work every time. Interesting. Uh, Lenny Wilkins, he, he wasn't the most fiery guy, but he certainly motivated his players and got his points across. Uh, just kind of interesting of all the uh, coaches uh, to get a thousand wins, somebody who's maybe, you know, not as boisterous, but um, headed upstairs uh, gets to that kind of a milestone. Absolutely. There are so many different ways, as we've seen in every sport, to get players motivated. His wasn't to yell and scream and throw chairs and things like that. He was a very calming influence, which I'm sure was something that the owners at the time with the Cavs really wanted. So it's not surprising then that his style fit Cleveland so much better. And the interesting thing is, as I'm looking at his career, it's amazing. He had two different stints as a head coach with the Supersonics, and he was a coach player for quite a long time. So obviously when he came in in 1986, he brought a lot of stability and credibility to a franchise that desperately needed it.
Mm. He certainly did. And one last thing I'll bring up is, you know, you talk about class. He was nothing but class. You watch his interviews and all that stuff. He was very a class guy, did not get animated. Now, let's I, I, I'm not trying to be this guy or anything like that. Basketball is a very interesting sport, as you gentlemen know. So Lenny Wilkins has all these wins, but he also has the most losses of any NBA coach in the history of basketball. So that's the part that I find very interesting. As successful as he was, that just shows you how difficult it is to coach in this league. And and but then again, on the flip side, you're absolutely right. He coached for such a long time. So obviously he's going to get a lot of wins and a lot of losses. But think about this. We're going back to why did he leave in 1993? He goes immediately to the Atlanta Hawks. And in his first season, becomes NBA Coach of the Year. Yeah. So you can tell that even though we ended up with Mike Fratello, it was almost a trade because Fratello used to be the the Hawks head coach. Yeah, but he ended up on the right side of that at the end of the day. I wonder, you know, I wonder we maybe need to get a barber on and figure out uh, who who got the better end of that deal from uh, from a, a hairstyle standpoint, Mike Fratello or Lenny Wilkins? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, all right, Dusty. Well, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for the information on Lenny Wilkins. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cleveland, this is for you. Ted, we are out and about Northeast Ohio. We're not on location, thank God. Traveling, I'll tell you, as you get older, not exactly ideal business or pleasure whatever anyway um had an interesting week we'll leave it at that started off with a place in lakewood called vosh we met a, a group of friends there and we had dinner in one of the outdoor igloos have you ever done that outdoor igloo yeah no. they set this up during COVID at many different places oh, so yeah. basically you have this little enclosure where you have the opportunity where it's just your group and you're separated from everybody and all that's enclosed. It was pretty cool. We had uh, some, some good food, some good drinks. So I highly recommend that. Once again, that's Bosch and Lakewood. Another place we've been starting to go to more often is a place called Red Wine and Brew. They have one in Chardon, Ohio, and then they've recently opened one up in Westlake. Oh. And here's the part that's great. They have like a wine tasting every week. Now, I don't know how this works. And I've asked a couple different people and they said they've changed some of the rules. Well, you wine drink the wine and you think about how good it is. That's how it works. That's true. But the, also the wine tastings are free. You don't pay oh. anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's you walk than, in. That's better than 10 cent beer night. I mean, it's I, I, I thought at some point in time, the rules and regulations that, that you had to pay some sort of money in order to be part of the tasting. I was told now that's not the case. So you walk into Red Wine and Brew, you stand there, they give you a glass. The we went uh, this past Saturday, and they had a gentleman who's from Northeast Ohio, who actually grew up in the Euclid area, and now he makes wine in California, and he's pouring all these different wines. We <laughs> we had six different wine tastings in a matter of like fifteen minutes. Now we're talking not talking about a full pour, but it didn't cost anything. We ended up buying one of his bottles of wine and a couple other items. So I highly recommend that red wine and brew. You can check that on Facebook. Here's the classic for the week. Yeah. This, this was, I knew this was going to be the way it was. It was very interesting. I went to the happy dog. 
which is on right off of West 65th Street. Happy dog. They had the Polish happy hour with our friend DJ Kishka. DJ Kishka. It was everything I thought it would be and more. So DJ Kishka pulls out all of these vinyl Polish songs and cool. plays them for like two hours. And then he pulls out his accordion and plays that. The place was packed. It was absolutely hilarious. A great time. The two hour or three hours went super fast. Not sure when they're doing it again, but it was a very good time. So hats off to DJ Kishka and the happy dog. Uh, last item is I'm actually, uh, it's my son's birthday oh. today. Well, actually earlier in the week, but we are going to celebrate. Once again, you just do the things you have to do. We're going to go to a Cavs game. Nice. So he wanted to see the Sixers play. So we're going to do that tonight. Cavs, Sixers. 7.30, Rock and Mortgage Fieldhouse. First Cavs game in quite a while, so it should be fun. Myself, my daughter, and my son will be attending, so nice. we're hoping for a win. Are you? Well, are that's you, our out and about. <clears throat> I know you've been out and about to an extent. Anything above and beyond your hockey ventures? Well, Ken, you know, we have, uh, uh, we have hockey. We have now added, you know, because we don't have as much hockey, We've added lacrosse oh. and baseball. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Okay. So uh, this is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Dad Uber. Oh, Duber. Yeah. Full effect. What we got. Well, you, you can't be playing right now because of recent events here in the area. We've had some decent snow. Have you so, been able to get outside yes. or is this indoor stuff? Uh, well, at the moment it's indoor. Okay. Oh, the moment it's indoor. So um, it's. Uh, yeah, there we go. Yep. And don't and forget about Cub Scouts. We got that too. We got oh, the big. Oh, the Pinewood Derby. <laughs> that's always your favorite. Pinewood Derby. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait to come in last again and have my kids hate me. Oh, yes. gosh. So wow. my goal this year is to try to get a, uh, a trophy for my oldest son because it's his last shot. And uh, okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll just run up and grab the other cars when his one is. <laughs> but uh, those, that's that's where I've been out and about. I don't know. That's Well, you've been out and about. And you've been loving it. And everyone in Northeast Ohio, plenty of things to be out and about with for St. Patrick's Day. We just ask you to do it safely. But, Ted, it's been a pleasure to be out and about in Northeast Ohio. Time for some overachievements, Ted. Okay. Oscar Lina of Australia is now the record book holder. Okay. He holds the record for the most table tennis balls bounced and caught in shaving foam on the head in 30 seconds. Let me say that once again so we all understand what we're looking at. He holds the record for the most table tennis balls bounced and caught in shaving foam on the head in 30 seconds. <laughs> How in God's green earth do you even think of doing something like that? Is he the only one that's ever done this? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Lina caught 12 of them in the allotted time. 
<laughs> he caught 12 balls in 30 seconds on his head, on his head in, in shaving, shaving foam. cream. Yeah. Now, is the shaving foam on his head or he's in shaving foam? Uh, no, he's it's on his head. He I saw okay. the video, he put a swim cap on and then they put a bunch of shaving foam on his head. Well, Oscar, congratulations on your record. He's got a heck of a shot at keeping this record because I don't know if anyone else is going to have the time to do this. You know what? I think you and I ought to go for this. Put it on. Uh, we should open a TikTok channel. Oh, yeah. We're at a certain age. Well, that's a perfect age for us. We are right. definitely 100% yes. TikTokers. TikTok, Snapchat, whatever. Oh, it's yeah. Called. All of it. Yes. Wow. Well, Oscar Lina. Keep doing what you're doing in Australia. I don't know if we're going to bring that over to the States, but uh, you're certainly an overachiever. Time for another history lesson with our professor, John Grabowski. And John, I have an item to talk about today that I actually I just think is Fabulous. I had the opportunity to go here right, right around Halloween for a concert, Severance Hall. Please tell us what you know about Severance Hall and why it's such a great place. Oh, my God. It's, it's Severance Hall, We, if we have two hours, we could talk about the importance of Severance Hall. But it is the home of the Cleveland Orchestra. And, and the Cleveland Orchestra is one of the top orchestras, not just in the nation, but in the world. And, and I'll do a little side story here. Uh, once upon a time, my wife and I were visiting Austria. We were on the train outside of Vienna, and our train stopped at Salzburg. And I looked out, and on the uh, advertisement panels on the platform, there was an advertisement the Cleveland Orchestra was in town. Oh, my gosh. The orchestra was touring in Austria. And and so that gives you a sense. The orchestra was founded in 1918, and you know it, it eventually started out in Gray's Armory, and then it played at Masonic Auditorium, and it needed a home. And it was John Long Severance, uh, who was one of the people who sponsored it. And John Long Severance was a member of the Severance family. Uh, he had worked for Standard Oil at one point. Family was involved with Standard Oil. And then he started a linseed oil company and got another. It was a very, very wealthy man. Uh, and he loved his wife, Elizabeth. And uh, when the orchestra was looking for a new home, he offered some money for it. I think initially about $1.1 million toward the cost. The structure was built in 1930, 1931. Uh, it was 14 months to build it. And you have to remember that this was the depression going on. And during the construction, Severance's wife died and he upped his donation to 2.4 million, wow. which is between 45 and $50 million in today's money. My gosh. And uh, he insisted that all the best materials be used in, in the hall. And the pattern in the ceiling of the hall is, is actually uh, it mimics one of the patterns of one of his wife, Elizabeth's dresses. Mm. And, uh, and so it, the hall uh, was, was opened. It was designed by Walker and Weeks, one of Cleveland's most noted architectural firms. And if you know the first Christian Science Church, which is now the Nottingham Spurk uh, uh, Innovation Center, that's right up the hill in Cleveland Heights from, the, and it's almost a clone. It, it looks, it's very much like Severance Hall, uh, but it's in a Georgian style, and and it and it sort of meshes with the, uh, it meshes with uh, the Cleveland Museum of Art. Uh, the land it is on was owned by Western Reserve University, and the, the university leased the land to uh, the orchestra for a dollar a year. <laughs> well, it's collaborative, wow. and. Uh, 
and you know it's in and it, it it hosts the best band in the land uh the interesting thing is in the pediment there's a sculpture you, if you look at that pediment outside and the sculpture is by henry herring henry herring is the, also the sculpture of the guardians of transportation on the, mm. on the memorial bridge uh but the hall is, 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 you know, it's it's changed over the years. At one time, there was a drive-through. Uh, that is, people who came in limousines uh, would actually drive it. You could drive in Euclid and then get out in East Boulevard, and you'd stop your car inside the hall, and you'd get out, and you'd go to the concert, and, and then the car would be parked for you somewhere else. Uh, that, that was taken out in the 1970s. Uh, that was turned into a restaurant in an open area. Uh, the capacity of the main concert hall now is around 2,000 people, uh, 2,000. There's a sm smaller concert hall that holds 400 people. Uh, when George Sell, probably the most famous conductor of the orchestra, came, uh, he was unhappy with the acoustics of the hall, and he was right. It was built for design. And so he had all the draperies and rugs taken out of the seating area, and he had a new shell designed on the stage area. It was called Zell's Shell. And that improved the acoustics so much that that orchestra sound that we now know, uh, it's a Cleveland orchestra sound, really came to the fore. And the whole instant, the whole place was was redone. It was ex extended. There was an extension put on in 1998, and the whole uh, theater, the music hall itself, was was restructured. And Zell's shell came out, but they restructured the. Uh, the, the platform where the orchestra performs to really continue that Cleveland sound. The acoustics in, in the hall are incredible. Uh, I, I think it, it is, is one of the landmarks of, of it is certainly the landmark of the city. It's, it's, it, 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 it is part of the Wade Park National Historic Site. It's a national landmark in, 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 in its own way. But if, you know, Clevelanders have something to be proud of. We always say, well, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would also say, you know, Severance Hall. Uh, and, and this is part of the cultural infrastructure of Cleveland, which was was built by a lot of the money that was earned in the Gilded Age. The Art Museum, sure. our great cultural institutions, the university I teach at all have, have money that, that came from that Gilded Age for whatever its bad parts were, the, the good parts are still funding parts of the mm -hmm. city. It's a, it's amazing how for a structure that was built so many years ago, the acoustics and the uh, architecture are timeless and and perfect. And I, I don't know what other superlatives to add. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's it's almost like walking into an Art Deco show place when when you you go into it. And and it is it has been I mean there are reviews of the acoustics in the hall that you can find online from music critics around the world talking about the sound quality and the and the quality of the orchestra, and I you know, Cleveland has never had anything to be ashamed of in terms of its orchestra. Yeah, absolutely. And the orchestra itself was founded in, in part by a woman, Adela Prentice Hughes, who founded the Musical Arts Association, which created the orchestra. So there's another story there. Wow, that's it. Sounds like we're gonna need to bring that up at some point in time and get a history lesson on that, John. That's yeah. that's unbelievable. It's, wow. it's just uh, it's and and of course you know the diversity of the community is now reflected in the audience and in the programming of the orchestra. You know, it's it's the site when I got my when I graduated from CWRU as as an undergraduate and my doctoral student. My my commencement was at Severance Hall. 
And oh my gosh! My, wow! And, and my I was hooded on, on the stage of Severance Hall, and and that was really a memory. You know, now the classes are so big that happens elsewhere sometimes, but it's yeah, it's been a part of the circle for for, for so many many years, and that That's was so once cool. that was once farmland. Wow! This was farmland. I think it was the Cozad family farmland, and the Cozads and the bases and the fords in this area were very much involved with an institution called the Underground Railroad. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, John, as always, blown away by your information to talk about, let's be honest, one of the cherished buildings in Cleveland, Ohio, Severance Hall. John, thank you once again. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. The most trusted name in journalism, Klops Clips. Ken, here we go. The city of New York recently put up a new road sign for Jackie Robinson Parkway in Queens. The sign misspelled Robinson's first name, <laughs> spelling it J-A-K-I-E instead of J-A-C-K-I-E. The Department of Transportation <laughs> fixed the sign last week. You got one job. <laughs> one job. I, I yeah I can't say anything. That's bad. There you go. A woman in uh, England spotted a heart-shaped potato in her bag of Walkers. That's a potato chip brand over there. She thought it was notable enough that she snapped a picture of it and sent it to some friends. Then she ate the chip. The friend messaged her back too late not to eat the chip because Walkers was giving away a hundred thousand British pounds. To whomever found the best heart-shaped crisp. The gaff cost the woman about 120000 U.S. dollars. Ooh. I bet Not that good. tasted great. Wow. A dog catching frisbees at the Louisville-Virginia Tech basketball game last week. Got a cheer. But not for what he caught, but rather what he dropped. The doggy dropped a deuce on the court at the end of his frisbee-catching performance. Yes. How about that? He was nervous. Yeah. And a complaint by a woman in Berlin, Germany, has led to a change in the government's rules for swimming. The woman filed a discrimination lawsuit uh, because she was not allowed to go topless at a swimming pool in the capital. So because of this, they've changed the rules. Torso coverings are now optional for everyone. Oh, good. Perfect. On a uh, related note, I bought us two tickets to Berlin for next week to go <laughs> swimming. Sports. This may be the biggest story coming out of spring training, courtesy of Giants broadcaster John Miller, the great John Miller, was broadcasting during a uh, split squad game between the Giants and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Here's a curveball, and that's in for a strike. I'm guessing, I have to guess, the D-backs decided, ah, oh, the heck with the big leagues. Let's just not be a big league team for the split squad. Here's the 1-1 pitch, and a fastball swung out and missed by Bryce Johnson. It's 1-2. They have sent no public relations people over here. No information about who the manager is or anything at all about him. So if they don't want to be a big league team, we'll just treat them like 
a Sandlot team. They give us no information about anything. So one of those guys on a red shirt managing. And a right-hander, one of their right-handers on the mound. And there's a ball up and away. Three and two the count. I mean, there are certain things that go along with being a big league team. Like try to act like a big league team. Three and two the count to Bryce Johnson. Here's Sacconi. And the pitch is bounced to second over to his right. Backhanding it, Castillo. And he throws out Johnson at first. See, I even had names. A little homework on what little we have, which is nothing whatsoever from the uh, the Bush League D-backs. John isn't taking it anymore. The Bush League D-backs. John that Miller, is, don't mince any words. Tell us how you feel. That is outstanding. There's only one other guy I could see doing that. You know who it, who it, is, who it would be. Yeah. Great Joe Tate. Yep. 100% correct. He would have... He would have said the exact same kind of stuff. So John Miller, not a not a fan of the uh, D-backs media relations department. Bush League, Bush League D-backs. I'm Ted Klopp. Hopefully this isn't Bush League, but that is news to me. Ted, good news for a Michigan woman who won a $30 lottery prize. She reinvested her winnings in a $50 scratch-off ticket with a $6 million prize. She scratched it off and hit. The woman says she will put the money toward home renovations and investments. Not sure if that means more lottery tickets. Well, you know, it's a good return on your investment. $50 to $6 million? Yeah. I would say that's pretty good. Yeah. Yep. Unbelievable. How come I never get that kind of good news? I don't know. I don't know. I'm hoping for that. Oh, no. Not a dad joke. My wife was looking in the mirror the other day and said, I feel fat. Give me a compliment. What did you say? Well, I paused and said, your eyesight's pretty good. That joke was horrible. Coming to the end of episode 110. 110. Wow. Unbelievable. Next time on our show, Dwayne Cerny is going to join us. You may not know who Dwayne is, but Dwayne is an expert at helping folks declutter or or, or removal of... Uh, uh, semi-hoarding, you might say. Is that, a, is that a good way to describe it, Ken? I think that'd be the way to say it. This is an interesting topic that I think affects many different people that listen to our podcast and above and beyond that. I'm very interested to talk to Dwayne, what people can do to reduce their clutter, how they can sell it. Is stuff worth something? I, I'm interested in all these different questions. I have a list of questions for Dwayne. I'm ready to roll. Okay. Well, before we get there, we... Uh... We talked about St. Patrick's Day. Will you be going to the parade? No, no parade for me. I have a ton of work stuff that I have to do. I am going to do this. I think I'm going to go to the Pride of Aaron. They have the St. Patrick's Day toast at midnight from Thursday to Friday. Mm. So I'll do that. But I, Ted, as you know, as you get older, it makes more and more things more difficult to attend those types of events when you 
have many parties involved with children and work and all that. But for those enjoying St. Patrick's Day, why don't you have one for the two of us? Aaron Gobron for us. I don't know what that I means. Aaron Gobron is that like uh, I don't know toast or something? I don't know. It must be. We'll have to get an Irish expert on at some point in time. Yeah, I, I wish we had one. Yeah. Um, okay. I. Oh, gosh. That's, uh, yeah. No, that's a great way to end the show, Ted. So uh, special thanks to Dusty Sloan, who I know is celebrating an Ashton University women's victory as they'll be making uh, an appearance to the lead eight. So congratulations to them. Also, congratulations to Kent State, who's in the NCAA tournament, the men's team, and our local Cleveland State women's team. They've also made the NCAA tournament. They have 30 wins this year, by the way. Oh, my. Yeah, I was pretty impressed wow. with their playing Villanova. So congrats to them. John Grabowski talking to us about Severance Hall. And, of course, yourself, Ted, for all the wonderful time and effort you put into this podcast. And basically, I do absolutely nothing. I come up on with you and talk, and that's what I do. I'm doing a heck of a job. So at some point, I'll be replaced, just like everybody else. But that's okay. If you set the bar low enough. Oh, yeah. It's real yeah. low right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right now, I'm sitting under the table. So, well, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. And just as a reminder, we're just two middle-aged men in Cleveland. Two middle-aged men in Cleveland is sponsored by Westminster AV, custom audio-visual packages for all occasions. (laughs) 